0: Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing tonight? It's good. It's good to see you all. Um, I'm glad everyone's here. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'm the campus minister with RUF. Uh, We're a Christian ministry that um, wants to have friends together on a college campus and ask questions about faith and spirituality and um, have fun together. Uh, Like Bella said, tonight's the last night for uh, registration for our fall conference. We're leaving on Friday. If you're able to come, I really would encourage you to come. Uh, it's a ton of fun. It's a great way, if this is your first time here tonight, and you're like, what did we stumble into? To get to know what RUF is. The stakes are low. Um, we're not a cult. I mean, no, I know cults say that, but we're not. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, we'll have a lot of fun. If money is an issue, talk to me. Money doesn't need to be why you don't go. So, uh, but it's a lot of fun. So uh, if you're curious, come talk to me or talk to someone else. We'd love to... We'd love to have you there. Um, So welcome back to RUF and welcome to our large group. We do a bunch of stuff throughout the week, um, like small group Bible studies and events like we saw on the screen. But we also do this, um, where we talk about, um, we spend some time singing and then we spend some time looking at a piece of the Bible and seeing uh, how it affects and shapes our lives. And so... This semester, as um, you've seen here and seen maybe around campus, we're looking at the book of John, uh, which is a book that uh, was written about t- 2,000 years ago, a little less, uh, by one of Jesus' followers. And so uh, we're looking at how Jesus shows himself to be God and how that challenges and comforts and shapes how we can live. And so tonight, we're going to look at a story how, um, where Jesus heals a paralytic. So there's this man who's been paralyzed for a very long time. And uh, how he heals him, but in so healing him, challenges first the Jewish understanding of self-autonomy, self-rule, and also challenges ours. Um, How Jesus heals a man, and in so healing him, challenges the Jewish and then our understanding of of self-autonomy and and, uh, our own self-rule. So uh, with that, look on your bulletins, and we'll uh, we'll read this story. Uh, This is uh, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going another steps before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking to all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to come, into your ha- uh, to come together, to join your presence, and to sing, to enjoy each other's company, to be stretched personally and emotionally and socially, uh, and now to look at your word and to see how it shapes and changes us. I pray, Lord, that as we do that, uh, that you would speak through this time and that you would be at work in us, changing us for your good, for our good and your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so kind of a recap of the story. I read it, so it makes, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to follow, right? You can figure out generally what's happening in this story. There's a guy who um, Jesus encounters while he's on his way into Jerusalem, and he sees that he's paralyzed. And Jesus comes to him and says, would you like me to heal you? And the man says, yes. And so Jesus heals him, and the man who's paralyzed for a very long time, clearly had a very severe illness, stands up and walks, and uh, goes on his merry way. And then he has some uh, conflict with the Jewish uh, so, uh, leadership, and and uh, then they have some conflict with Jesus. Uh, so it's not it's not super hard to understand like what's happening in this story. It kind of is like okay yeah this is pretty you know pretty normal narrative of what's happening. But what's interesting and what I want to pay attention tonight is how John interprets or how John gives like a theological interpretation to what's happening with these events. That's where John puts his emphasis, and that's what I want us to pay attention to. But Before we do that, I want to spend just a couple of minutes kind of focusing on two, I think, what are two important aspects of the text that are especially kind of maybe urgent or applicable to people who are in college right now. Uh, And those are two quick things that have to do with the reliability of the Bible. So I get, I talk with students all the time, and I talk with people who are, you know, skeptical of Christianity and are like, I don't know if I can believe what the Bible says. Like, is this kind of oh, holy document, actually reliable? Can I trust that it is a, a verifiable or scientific text? And I think, like, I think even as Christians, you know, those of us who are Christians in the room can have t- times when you like, you'll watch a YouTube video or something, and you'll just see somebody point out the supposed contradictions are in the Bible or something, and you're like, ooh, is this trustworthy? Can I actually trust what this book is saying? And so um, I think we also have a lot of questions about that. There's tons of questions in that, more than I can get into tonight. But I do want to focus on two things that I think are important uh, on that. And uh, so the first thing I want to look at is this pool, Bethesda. Uh, we saw it earlier there in, uh, in verse 2. Now they're in Jerusalem. By the sheeps Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roof colonnades. So it's clear here that when John writes this down, he has in mind a particular pool, Right? He has, at least we would think, he gives all these details about this pool. He, presumably, has in mind a very specific place, or at least it would seem. Uh, He he tells us it's in Jerusalem, it's by the Sheep Gate, it's got five pillars supporting the roof, right? That's a fairly specific description. It would be like for me if I were to say, uh, you know, the Sonic, the one in Las Cruces, the one on El Paseo, the one across from the U-Haul. Like... That's a real place. And we all know immediately that I'm talking about a specific real place. That's what John is doing here. Um, so now here's the trick. For 1900 years, scholars are reading this and saying, we can't find this place, this very specific place in Jerusalem. We, we just don't know where it is. It doesn't seem to exist. And so critics of the Bible would read that and be like, well, this was clearly added in after John wrote this, and, because, and by somebody who didn't know anything about Jerusalem. And it was just like, I'm going to add some detail, uh, but I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm just going to like throw this in there. And so then that would make the question like, well, can we really trust what the Bible has to say? Because if there's just stuff thrown randomly, that's not actually a description of Jerusalem. Can we really trust what it has to say about a whole bunch of stuff? Uh, so is the Bi- Bible actually a reliable piece of information? If we can't trust what it says about archaeology, can we trust when it says things about miracles or about Jesus' resurrection, Right. That's, that's a real question. Well, here's the thing. So about um, in the 19th century, in the early 1900s, an archaeologist is digging in a spot that nobody had dug before. And all of a sudden, he like, you know, I can imagine his shovel just kind of falls through. The, I don't know how archaeology works. Talk to Lydia. But <laughs> he, he discovers this pool. And it accurately, disc- it, it fits piece to piece exactly what, th- that we knew where the sheepskate was. And all of a sudden, there's this spot that's got five columns, and all of a sudden, it's got all this stuff, and it's like, oh my gosh, everyone loses their minds. Like, this is the pool. This is the pool that we were talking about. Um, Joe, go go to the next slide. And here we have a picture of it. This is the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And it's amazing, because what's actually happening here is that, what it proves is that John understood Jerusalem in its detail better than archaeologists did up to the time. Like, John knew what he was talking about. He was talking about a real historical place that he knew. So it's like, I was an eyewitness. I saw this happen at a real place in Jerusalem. And I saw at a real place a man who was paralyzed healed and walk again. That he's not just mythologizing it or making it up. And so he's saying, and, and I think the, the, the implication is clear. If we can trust that he's talking about a real place, we can probably also have more trust that he's talking about real events, even a real miracle. That kind of blows our minds. Um, so I, I, think, I think that's significant. I think it's important that when you read your Bible, you can be like, this thing is pretty historically located. This actually says it happens and it did happen. Second thing I want you to notice here in the text is, is probably a detail you missed when we started, uh, when, we, when I read it. Uh, look at verse 4. Trick question. There is no verse 4. There is no verse 4 in what, you've been, in what you just read. Why? Why is there no, no verse 4? Well, here's why. Because, here's, here, I'm, I'm going to have to walk backwards a little bit. We don't have, in the human collection... The original manuscript that John wrote this book, you know, the, the, the book that the Apostle John wrote. We don't have that scroll. It's been lost. What we do have are literally thousands of copies or fragments of copies of what John wrote that are of various ages and various qualities that we've, you know, archaeologists have found all around the Middle East. We have copies of those, Right. And so think about if you have thousands of copies of a different piece of writing, think about it this way. If I told you all to write down the Gettysburg Address and then I told you to take the Gettysburg Address and have your friends write it down and then pass that along, what would happen over all those versions? There would be some variations, right? there would probably be some differences. One person would misspell a word. One person would maybe like skip a line because their eye didn't see it. One person would maybe be like, I'm gonna fix what Abraham Lincoln was wrong on and actually add some stuff in. (laughs) Don't do that. It's a great piece of writing. But anyways, you can imagine that over time, as this copying process happens, kind of like a giant game of telephone, things would seem to sort of break down a little bit, right? In this process, a word would be misspelled, an added phrase or dropped word, something like that. Well, that's exactly how the New Testament was, uh, was passed along or tra- you know, transmitted around the world. Is somebody's copying this document and it's just getting copied and copied and copied and spread out all around. And so uh, over thousands of years, hundreds of years of, of, uh, of copying it. And um, so this is, you know, you, know you, you think about this, thousands of copies with tiny, minor variations or differences. This is why something like the Da Vinci Code could launch into, into popularity and say, like, you can't trust what the Bible says. No one knows what it says. There's a billion different versions that all say something different. You can't trust the reliability of it. And that's interesting that they say that because it's just not true. Um, we actually can trust it, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But then that, that brings us back to verse 4 why verse 4 is not there. So what verse 4 actually says, if it, um, it, it, there, is, there are some copies that have verse 4. It has this thing that says um, that, and maybe you, some of you have read this before, it, has, it says that, um, if I were to read verse 3, uh, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the water... To, for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, who, and whoever stepped in first in the stirring water was healed of disease, whatever he had. So here is probably some local legend or some you know some hearsay that says, Oh "I heard that maybe if an, if a person stepped into the water, they were healed." We should put that in the Bible because that was our local legend, and so somebody kind of put that into one of the copies, right? Uh, somebody, in, in, you know, puts that in. Um, so why is that not included in what we read today? Why do we not include that in, in the Bible that we read? Well, the trick is that we have to combine all of these different versions, all of these different copies together, and then try and do this process of discerning what's the one that's, the, what's the one that's accurate. What, how do we know which one's accurate? And this study, this is science, is called text criticism text criticism. Uh, And it's the process, this very scientific method of combing over the thousands of copies that we have and and discerning which one is most accurate. And it's a very precise method that, that scholars have developed to do this. And this method is so good that you can basically get to a point where you can say, like, we know with total certainty what was the original Gospel of John. And I can tell you more about that if you have questions about this. But one of the rules is that older texts are more reliable, which makes sense. If I gave you the Declaration of Independence and said copy it, the one that you are copying from is likely to be more reliable than the one that's been copied eight times, right? Older texts are more reliable. Now, bringing back to verse 4. Verse 4 is not in the oldest texts. The oldest texts of the New Testament of John that we have, verse 4 is not in it. And some of these are old documents. Hit the next one. So this one right here is a, is a fragment. It's a very long and very famous fragment of, of the Gospel of John. It's called Papyrus 66. It's extremely old. It's in a museum in, I think, Germany. And you can go and look at it. It's, I have not done so, but you can, you know, you can read it. So It's, it's in Greek. Um, it dates to about 200 A.D., which is probably around 70 years to when we know John wrote his gospel. So probably within the lifetime of when John wrote his gospel, this was made. So it's extremely accurate. It does not have verse 4. So we can say with pretty much total certainty, verse 4 is not what John wrote. And somewhere along the line, somebody inserted something else into it. So what's the point? Why do I say all this? The point is that the Bible that you read is a historical document that didn't just fall out of the sky. And that's good news. But here's the other thing. It's an extremely reliable document. It is an extremely reliable document so that when you read this Bible, you are reading something that is actually written. These are the words that John wrote. It is a verifiable, historically proven document that we can have very high confidence, total confidence, that this is what John said and what God said. Um, So, you know, if you hear, why do I say all this? Why do I say this about a pool in text criticism? Well, it's because the Bible does contain spiritual truth. You know, I believe that. But those truths are couched within historical real events, and that the Bible is a highly re- do- reliable, highly historical document. And so if you have friends who are like, oh, you can't trust the Bible. You can't trust what it says. It's just some old ancient document that has no historical grounding. That's just a lie. That's just not true. And you can tell them, well, I don't honestly know all the details, but I know that I could do research with you or with, you know, with, my, with a campus minister, and I could I show you that the Bible is actually a highly reliable document so that when we listen to it historically, we can also listen to it spiritually and theologically. If you have questions about that, um, I'd love to talk to you about it. Don't ask me questions about archaeology. I'm not an archaeologist. Talk to Lydia. <laughs> but I'm sure she, yeah, she will help you in the right direction. So, all right. So if this is true, if it's a reliable document, and it has truth to say both about history and theology, that is, knowing God. What, is it, what does this text say about that? So the first thing I want us to look at here is that the sign points to Jesus' authority. The sign points to Jesus' authority. So here's Jesus. He heals this man that's been paralyzed for 38 years. And what's interesting is that, like, all of Jesus' signs in the book of John, Jesus' sign is not... Jesus' miracle, it's not just a parlor trick where Jesus is just flexing and being like, watch what I can do. No, when Jesus does something miraculous in the book of John, it has a purpose he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it for something bigger theologically and that there's a reason, for, reason why he's doing that. And he zeros in, John zeroes in on why he does it in verse 9. So here he is. He does this miracle. There's more in there than, I want, than we have time to look at. But I want to zero in on why John tells us about it. Look at it. He says, second half of verse 9, now the day was the Sabbath. The day was the Sabbath. Now, that doesn't feel very significant to us, but to a Jew who's reading this, that is extremely important. It's extremely important. Why? Because the Jewish people had placed a ton of significance and value on the Sabbath day, the day that they were supposed to rest from their work, if you know anything about Jewish culture. That in the Old Testament, God had given them this seventh day as a day that they were to rest, that is, not work, as a day that they were to worship God alone. And he'd commanded them, this is a big deal. Honor the Sabbath. Respect the Sabbath. In fact, um, if you know the Ten Commandments, you know that the Fourth Commandment is honor the Sabbath. It's in the top ten. It's a big deal. But here's what's interesting. The Jews had taken this commandment from God and had basically blown it way out of proportion and had put a ton of emphasis and weight on it. And they had created dozens of mini rules around the Sabbath that, that were outside beyond what God had commanded uh, that, that basically had to take away all the way, you know, say ways that you had to honor the Sabbath, and they were absurd and they were ridiculous. They were things that God did not command. For example, He says you can. They said you can only walk X number of steps from your home on the Sabbath, or you're working, or you. you what, what were some of the other ones? He said you could only prepare food, uh, uh, you know, at certain times or before the Sabbath. Otherwise, it was considered working. Or, you know, another one that we see here, you're not allowed to carry anything on the Sabbath, otherwise it's considered working. So here they are, the Jews, taking God's good command and blowing it up and adding all these details to it that are just so extra and so beyond the pale and, and, and saying, this is everything that the Sabbath has to be. Don't break it. And not only were they adding rules, but they were planting their identity and their value in the adherence or in following those rules. So that when they said, when they looked at these, they look at all these rules and they say, we are valuable as a people, we're accepted, we're important, we're not failure because of all these rules that we are keeping. Okay, that's so important. That, 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 in fact, one of the three main things of Judaism was following the Sabbath. We are significant as the ethnic people of Israel because we follow the Sabbath. And they even got to the point where they're like, we're better than everyone else out there because we follow the Sabbath. It was a big deal, the Sabbath following for them. And I want to be clear in in that God said, honor the Sabbath. That's a rule that God gave his people. But the Jews had done two things here when they did it. They First, they took God's rule way farther than God had intended it to be and added extra rules. And they started to place their significance and value in the following of those rules. Both of those things were far beyond and wrong and not what God intended. So when they see a healed man carrying his mat, they say, Sabbath violator, you can't do that. And they, they, get furious, they get mad at him. And then he's just like, I didn't, uh, Jesus told me to. And so then they go to Jesus and they get furious with him. They get absolutely furious. What kind of a teacher are you? Who do you think you are? God gave us this rule. God gave us, we, we, the, the Sabbath rules, is, you cannot break the Sabbath rule. And this is where Jesus starts to challenge them. Look at verses 18, or 16, he says, and and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Then verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling himself God, because he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So here's what's happening. Jesus is beginning to challenge, he's beginning to press into their very identity. He's beginning to say, here are these places where you are saying, I am valuable, significant, important, loved. And he's beginning to say, uh, not the right place. Wrong. You are looking for your significance in the wrong place. And you know what happens when, when anything starts to threaten our identity? We get real aggressive. Just like the Jews, right? Think about the thing that, you, that you're like, this is what makes me valuable. If somebody were to come at you and say, nah, not that important. We get real mad. To the point that the Jews are ready to kill him. That they are ready to kill Jesus based on that. What Jesus is coming in and saying, I'm God, everything that you're looking to for your significance is wrong. Humans don't like that. (laughs) We hate it when somebody comes to us and tells us you're wrong. We hate it when somebody comes to us and says, the thing that makes you valuable and important is wrong. We get furious when somebody does that to us. And so we want to kill the person who threatens us like that. Here's the key. The sign, this is what's important, the sign of healing a man points to Jesus' authority. The sign points to Jesus' authority. Only God can heal a paralyzed man, and only God can challenge the Sabbath rules. So what that means is that Jesus is saying, I'm God, the proof is in my miraculous signs, and I'm challenging the thing that you are looking to for your significance and your identity. And so that brings us to the second point, Jesus' authority as God challenges human authority. And and John will show us this over and over again in the book of John. That Jesus does this, he comes into our world, he comes into our lives, and he challenges our authorities just like he does to the Jews. That we're not that different from the Jews if we're really honest with ourselves. We maybe don't do what they do with the Sabbath, but we definitely do that, where we find something that we create all these rules about. And then we start to say, this is what makes me important. And we begin to judge others by it. So let me, let me, we take a good principle and then we blow it up and we ruin it for ourselves and for others. So what's an example? Think with me about busyness. How many of you all would say you're busy? Every single one of you. I talk with all of you a lot. I say, how's your day going? All of you say, oh, it's busy. I do the same thing, right? So it's no big deal. I had a crazy busy day today. <laughs> but here's the thing. We take a good principle, working hard, studying hard, doing our jobs. We take a good thing, like doing what we're supposed to do, and we blow it out of proportion, and we make all these rules about how busy we are, right? So, and we make it a virtue about how busy I am, right? So like, there's this unspoken sort of competition to see who can out-busy who. Right? I know we do this. I know I do it. Am I right? So when someone asks, you know, when I meet someone, I say, how are you doing? They say, I'm busy. I immediately start asking, like feeling this pressure to be like, how can I out busy them? How can I prove to them that I'm busier than they are? Because somehow if I'm busier than they are, somehow I'm getting more done or somehow I'm more valuable. Like somehow in our society, busyness is a sign of value. And so if you're busier than someone, Maybe you're significant or valuable or important, right? Complaining about busyness today is like the most definitive hashtag humblebrag, right? We're just like, you're just like, oh, I'm so busy. I have so much going on. But we're really, we're just like, yes, let me, lavish me with the praise of my busyness. Right? This is what we do. Why? Why do we do this? I know we all do this. You're all laughing because know, you know that we do this. I do it too. It's because we're deriving some sort of transcendent meaning and value in our lives by how busy we are. We're saying, I matter. I'm significant as a human being because I'm so busy. And then we also start to say, I'm, <laughs> this is horrible. We start to say, I'm better than so-and-so because of how busy I am. Because I'm working, I don't know how many jobs y'all work, eight jobs, and I'm taking 75 credit classes, and I've got this internship. Like, we're just like, this is how busy I am, and I'm super valuable because of it. Right? That's what religion is, y'all. Religion is finding transcendent meaning and value in something that we do, then that's exactly what the Jews did. They derived a superior value and purpose in themselves by taking a God-given rule and blowing it up in ways to evaluate themselves and judge others. We're no different than the Jews. And that's just how we do this with busyness. We do this with academics. We do this with athletics. We do this with, I mean, pick a thing. We do this with looks. We do this. So to the Jews and to us, Jesus comes down and challenges that. He says, I'm bigger, I'm more powerful, I'm more important than all your rules and all of your self-evaluation. He says to the Jews, I'm God proven by the fact that I healed this man right in front of you and you're wrong to find your value in your Sabbath keeping. And to us, he comes in and says, I'm God proven by this miracle of healing a man 38 years lame, and you are wrong to find your value in busyness. And when he does that, he challenges our authority. He pricks our sin and he pricks our pride, right? What is sin? At its heart, it's looking to anything other than God for our value and for our significance. And Jesus challenges our sin because he is the challenge of our autonomy and our claim to significance and value. And the Jews, they hated him for it. They hated him for it because they got the challenge. They saw what Jesus was doing. They saw that he was calling them out on their sin and they didn't want it and they wanted to kill him. That's how sharp of a critique it was. He does the same thing to you and I today. He challenges our autonomy He challenges your self-evaluation. He says, whatever you look to for value, your busyness, your grades, your religiosity, your athleticism, your beauty, whatever it is, if you're not finding your value in me, you're sinning. And when we get that challenge, y'all, when we feel that challenge of Jesus, we either hate him and we hate Jesus or we have to submit to him and we have to obey him. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground when Jesus is involved. The proof that you're starting to get who Jesus is and what he's claiming is when you're no longer just like, meh, Jesus was okay. But when you either say, I hate that guy, he is a threat to me, or I love this guy, he is a savior to me. When you're just like, meh, you're not getting the challenge that Jesus is. This is the same for Christians and non-Christians that, we, that, 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 that we, we have to feel this challenge that he says to us. But here's the difference for Christians. This is good news. It's really good news because there's sweet, awesome relief. Because rather than trying to earn and stack up against others and find your value in whatever you're trying to do, Whatever you're trying to earn your worth is, Jesus says, why stack up your imperfect value next to my towering love and grace? Jesus comes in and says, this is why, this is what we mean when we say that Jesus is life for our tortured souls, that he's water for our parched hearts, that he's bread for our starving stomachs. When Jesus says, Whoever hears my words and believes in me has eternal life. This is what we mean when we say, no longer are we looking for our evaluation in what we do, but in who Jesus is and how much he loves us. When you get that, you don't have to run around looking for all this other stuff to say I'm Suddenly Jesus says, I love you because I love you because I love you and the proof is that I died and came back to life for you. And if that is true, friends, then that is value and significance and love that you can never earn. And if that's true, then you can just relax. (laughs) You can relax in college without all the pressure to make yourself valuable. That's relief from the pressure to measure up. That's what you have as a Christian. That's what we can have as Christians, that when you trust and believe in him, O oh Christian, you are free from the pressure to earn your own value. That's grace. It's grace that Jesus challenges our autonomy with his perfect love and that his perfect satisfaction goes to our deepest need. So what do we see in this text? We see that Jesus miraculously heals a man. But there's more happening than that. The point is that Jesus is challenging us to wrestle with his authority. That if he's God, he can do a miracle. And if he's God, he has the authority to challenge your autonomy and the places where you are looking for significance and value. So here's the test. Are you wrestling with Jesus in this? Are you letting him challenge you in the places where you look for value? If you are, you're getting his challenge. And here's my challenge to you. Wrestle with his claim. Wrestle with his authority. And then together in community, work towards understanding how much he loves you despite what you do yourself, despite how you evaluate yourself. May God give us grace to do that. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thanks for your word. Thanks that you do meet us exactly where we are. Thank you for your incredible love that doesn't evaluate us based on our own measuring up, that you challenge us in our sad little mud pies that we make for our value, but that you love us because you love us because you love us and that you show us that in Jesus and his work. Help us to understand that and trust it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.